Welcome to the month of September. Those of you who are part of the Home Run Club, I know many of you hear this and listen to this as a podcast or you throw it in as a CD riding down the road. We're so thankful for your partnership, so thankful for your willingness to come alongside us as we continue to seek to make a mark for the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Dan Seaborn. I lead Winning at Home, and most of you know that. But for those of you who are new, I want to just thank you so much again for your partnership. Let me tell you that our goal here is to seek to help people draw near to God. I have been traveling the last uh, little bit, last four nights. I preached, preached actually in a revival at a tent in Wisconsin, and I saw many people come to know the Lord as Savior. And I got to tell you, I was tired. I'm weary in the body. But it is so enjoyable to see people draw near to Christ. And I'm so thankful for your partnership in helping us not only do it where I go and travel and speak, but right here in the local area as well. With our counselors seeing literally hundreds of people on a weekly basis, we are thanking the Lord for using us to make a difference. Again, drawing people near to God. Because we believe, as you're about to hear in this little message being shared by Steve Norman. Steve's a new part of our Winning at Home team. Uh, formerly pastored at churches and was a speaking pastor, and we're so thrilled to have him partnering with us now. He's been traveling and speaking and making a mark for the Lord, and I today am going to uh, bring you into a little time where he's sharing a sermon about that idea of drawing near to the Lord and, and asking the question, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? And I'm looking forward to you uh, listening to these thoughts, listening to these words as Steve articulate what it means to draw nearer to the Lord and seek Him in your life. And that's our prayer for you. That's our hope for you, that as you continue to do that, it's where peace comes from. We live in a world that I continue just to marvel at the way it seems to be coming loose at the seams. But man, those of us who have faith in the Lord, it's a time to tighten those strings and go, I'm good. I'm good because I'm in God. And that's what this message will draw into your heart and into your life. So I pray that you will enjoy it. And here we are joining Steve now live as he shared this message. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the great challenges of COVID is that it reminded us that we could live alone. And it also reminded us that we need each other. Like, at what, at what point in human history have you been able to do, like, everything from the confines of your home? You could order groceries, you could watch first-run movies, you could attend work meetings without wearing any pants. Like, you could do so many things that nobody ever imagined that you could be able to do. But then, and, and if you're an introvert, you, you were, like, in heaven, you're like, yes, I could live the rest of my days like this. But if you're an extrovert, you, like, had the shakes on day two, right? You're like, I need people, I need human contact, I gotta give somebody a hug, right? And sometimes we don't know how much we need one another until we didn't have access to one another, right? So in our family, my wife's a nurse, and she got vaccinated early. I got vaccinated. My older daughter got vaccinated. Our younger kids weren't weren't old enough to get vaccinated yet. So my 14-year-old daughter tested COVID positive about two weeks before school was over. And how many of you just felt like the school year was a roller coaster? Like, we're safe, we're not, we're up, we're down, we're in, we're out, we're in person, we're online. It was just, it was just crazy. You didn't know what was happening. And so, so she was living in the basement bedroom and we would like kind of leave food by her door and send her messages, but like not have contact with her. So she was under house arrest. But then, so she was, she was kind of happy because she didn't have to like take final exams, right? Because they wouldn't let her in the building. But the people who are most affected were her younger sister and younger brother because when you're in elementary school, the best part of the school year is the last two weeks because you're not doing anything learning-related. Like you're having picnics and parties and balloons and popsicles and watching movies. That's the best part of fourth grade. 
And so our daughter, she was just so miserable because she was going to miss the last two weeks. And the first week she was sad, and then she kind of got over it. But the last day of school, her teacher, Mrs. Thompson, emailed my wife and she said, Kelly, is Miriam up and are you guys home? And she said, yeah. She just says, have her ready by the door in a half an hour. School's about a third of a mile away from our house. Mrs. Thompson walked the entire fourth grade class over to the end of our driveway and sang the class song to my daughter while she stood on the porch. Now, Mrs. Thompson was great because she's retiring. She already had her shot, and she's like, I know I'm breaking the rules, but she came up, and she gave Miriam a big hug. And she just wanted to let her know, like, you are loved, and you're not alone. We can survive without human contact, but we cannot thrive without human contact. We can function without community, but we can't flourish without community. Because without community, we don't have a sense of belonging, we don't have a sense of identity, and we don't have a sense of purpose. And God has given you people in your life, people in this church, people in the family of God that you might know in other states to lift you up when you are falling down. And he has given you as a gift to them to sing a song when they can't lift their voice. The scriptures tell us from the very beginning of the story that community was always part of God's design. Before God created a single thing in this universe, he turned, actually before he created the first person, he turned to the other people in eternity and he goes, let us make humans in our own image. Before there was a people, God was an us. One of the mysteries of God is that God functions as a trinity. He's one entity, but he's got three persons, so God knows love within God's self. That's kind of a weird thing to wrap your brain around, but God exists in a community. And then when God creates Adam, it's the first time in the creation story where God looks at him and he goes, it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for a person to be alone. And we usually hear this in the context of marriage, right? But we all know that there are some people who aren't yet married, and there's some people who were married, and they're not married anymore, and there's some people who are widowed. And it, God doesn't just say, like, I invented marriage so that people don't have to be alone. God says, I invented community so that people don't have to be alone. So regardless of your marital status, God says, you belong. You need each other. Someone else in your life is a gift to you, and one day, whether they realize it or not yet, you are a gift to them. I have created community for your thriving. About 2,000 years ago, a guy by the name of Luke, who was an early follower of Jesus, wrote about the first family, the first community of Jesus' followers living in a town that still exists today, Jerusalem. He writes this in the book of Acts. He says, the early believers, the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So listen to the commitments that these people made. They committed themselves to fellowship. They chose family over individuality. They committed themselves to teaching. 
They said, like, I'm not just going to roll out of bed and decide what I think is right or wrong today. I'm going to submit to what God says is right or wrong, and that's going to be delivered to me through the scriptures by people who know it. So rather than choosing my personal autonomy, I'm submitting to the authority of God as revealed in the scriptures. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They said, we're going to eat anyway. Let's eat together. Let's encourage one another. It says that they devoted themselves to prayer. Have you ever noticed that you can play golf with somebody for 20 years and never connect with them on a spiritual level? And you can pray with somebody once and it instantly serves as a catalyst for your relationship to go to a different level. These people experience wonder and signs. They experience praise as an overflow of their connection with one another. And they experience the favor of all of the people. It says they loved each other so well. Everybody in that town who watched them, they said, there's something about those guys that's unique. If the church in America is not experiencing the favor of all of the people, it's not the people's fault, it's the church's fault. If the church does not love one another well, we don't have anything of substance or value to model or invite outsiders into. Acts 4 says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Nobody claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. I don't know about you, some of us hear that message and we're like, whoo, that feels weird. I don't like that at all. I don't like to share stuff. I like to have my own stuff. I have so much of my own stuff, I had to like build a bigger garage and rent a storage unit to hang on to my own stuff. And I realized that we are people who are wired to accumulate and defend private property, even though that's a relatively modern invention given human history. And I know that we like to hold on to our own stuff and we're wired to be selfish from an early age because I saw it in my nephews when they were four. We were on a boat on a, on a vacation at a cottage and they were fighting over a toy and one of them decided like just in an instant you could see the wheel spinning in his brain. He's like, I can share this but if I share it I might not get it back so I'm just gonna throw the toy overboard so that nobody gets it. And sure enough, like my sister's boyfriend dove out of the boat, moving boat to try to save like an, uh, like an 80 cent action figure and he failed. But, but I love that his little brain, he's like, you know what, I can share this or I can burn it to the ground. And some of us are like, you know what? If I, if I can't have it to my own, nobody should have it. And Jesus is like, that's not what this is about at all. The first followers, they were so, so committed to love and generosity and selfishness, they didn't claim stuff. They didn't white-knuckle stuff. They lived their lives with open hands. It says, with, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, there were no needy persons among them. There were no needy persons among them. Not because they were nice, but because God's grace had been unleashed like a tidal wave in their church. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It says all of the believers were functioning as one. With great power, they all testified to the gospel. They were like a magnifying glass in a sandbox. They focused all of their energy into declaring who Jesus was to the city of Jerusalem. And because God's grace was working powerfully in them, there were no needy people at all. 
Now, there are more lessons to learn from the first church than we have time to cover here, but they experienced something magical for a season. They were living this electric sense of community together until persecution, a wave of persecution hit the church and scattered them. But because they all had this vision of community, wherever it was that they landed throughout the Mediterranean in the Middle East, they go, I know what family is supposed to look like, and they sought to recreate that everywhere they went. Over the next decades, persecution was pushing the followers of Jesus to the far corners of the Mediterranean. And in one letter to an audience that was ethnically Jewish but spiritually Christian, an author wrote to a suffering church, and he wrote this in a letter called the Letter to the Hebrews. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since the sacrifice of Jesus gives us access to God the Father, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, let us draw near to God. Let's encourage one another. Let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. There's, there's these three mandates. There's these three commands for how to live well in community together. So let's unpack them again one at a time. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, a full assurance of the faith, and a conscience that is clean before God and others. I, I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying there is like, if we're going to draw close to God, and we're going to be honest with God, and we're going to be honest with each other, we need community so that the people in our lives can tell us the hard truths that we need to hear. You ever try to hang a picture by yourself? And you like came to the other side of the wall, and you're like, yeah, that's not working at all. Or you try to hang a picture with a friend, or, or maybe you try to hang a picture with a friend who had a level. Out of those three scenarios, alone with a buddy or with a buddy and a level, which one gives you the greatest odds for having a straight picture? It's having two people and an objective standard. Community helps us to know what is real and what is not real. Somebody said wisdom is making friends with reality. Have you ever noticed how sometimes somebody could say like, I know you really, really like her. She hasn't returned to any of your texts. Save your time, bro. Like this is, this is not gonna end well for you. It's time, it's time to cut your losses. Sometimes our friends are people who tell us the truths that we cannot hear on our own so that we can launch into a new season of life that is good. Now, the scriptures say this in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I think we need people in our lives who can help us look at our hearts with a level, which is the truth of God. I did that this last week. I had some friends that during the pandemic I started connecting with virtually. So we're on this Marco Polo app and we connect every once in a while and I was like, hey, I think I have a confession to make. I think that I, I wronged some people in this season of my life and I think that I might need to make some amends. And, and I had a conversation with these guys and they said, you know what? I don't think you screwed up there the way that you think that you did. I want you to forgive yourself in that scenario and stop carrying around this load and this anchor of shame. However, I think you did hurt these people over here. You need to apologize to them and make amends. So the good news was I wasn't wrong where I thought that I was. The bad news is I was completely wrong somewhere else. 
And I needed friends to say, don't beat yourself up about this, but you do, need to, you do need to dial into this. And all of us need people who love us enough to tell us the truth because they care about us and they want us to be better. We read this in the scriptures. There, there were a couple people who were early followers of Jesus. One guy was by the name of Peter. Some of you guys know him as Saint Peter. And then there's another guy by the name of Paul. And Paul and Peter were kind of operating in similar circles, but they weren't always there at the same time. So in one of the very first letters that Paul wrote, to a church in Galatia, he says this about a conflict that he had with Peter, and he had a chance to tell him the truth. Check this out. He goes, when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He's like, I called him out because he was wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Back in the early church, there were kind of two ethnic groups that people split into. There were Jews, and then there were non-Jews called Gentiles. And so he goes, at this one particular church, it was largely Gentiles. But when Jews came up, when they arrived, Peter pulled back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, which is the Jews. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul loves Peter, and he loves the Gentiles, and he loves him enough to tell him the truth about his behavior. He's saying, you're, you're super friendly with the Gentiles until the Jews show up, and then you pretend like you don't know them. He goes, that's division. That's pride. That's insecurity. That's disrespect, and it will not be tolerated in the church of God or in the name of Jesus. He's trying to expose his hypocrisy for the sake of unity. He's telling, Paul, he's telling Peter a hard truth because he needs all of them to be better. If you've ever been in recovery, you know that one of the, one of the mottos that we hear in 12-step groups is you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. You're only as sick as the secrets you keep. Why? Because secrets isolate us from true community. But a truth-telling community always smokes out secrets. A truth-telling community smokes out secrets. And the Bible says that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And so God is saying, like, I don't want you to live in, in bondage to your secrets or to your shame or to your lusts or to your private temptations anymore. He goes, I want to smoke that stuff out into the light, not to shame you, but to liberate you. Not to embarrass you, but to set you free. 1 John chapter 1 is a letter that was written by the name, guy by the name of John. He goes, if we walk in the light... Like he is in the light, we have fellowship, we have community with one another. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He goes, you know when you have real community? When you're choosing to walk in the light. You know when you have broken community? You know when you have conflict? You know when you have division? You know when you're tempted towards isolation? When you're committed to living your life in the shadows. And he goes, and the key that brings you out of the shadows into the lights is confession. And confession is just a simple act of telling the truth. And I, I believe that three of the hardest words in the English language are these. I need help. I need help. I'm stuck. Like, I have tried to battle this temptation on my own, and I keep losing. I have tried to fight this battle with despair or depression or anxiety or pride on my own. I can't. Will you help me? 
And sometimes the truth isn't bearing some deep, dark secret from our past. Sometimes telling, confession is just telling where I am right now. And right now I'm stuck and I need you. Can you help me? Will you pray for me? That's confession. That's, that pulls us out into the light. And there's some things that can happen in community that cannot happen in isolation. James says, if you have sinned and you ask somebody to pray for you, you'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You know why some of us aren't experiencing spiritual healing? Because we haven't told other people that we need help. And the book of James, is, it doesn't say like there's this weird formula. It says, if you confess, you will be healed. Cause, effect, full stop. Say, I've been wrong, I need God to heal me, and you have another person pray for you, and it happens in an instant. Why do we need community? We need community because we need people in our lives who love us enough to tell us the truth that we can't tell ourselves. Why do we need community? We need community to help to invite other people who will call us to hope when we're drowning in despair. The writer of Hebrews says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess We need lifelines for one another because the world is often a dark and scary place. If you haven't gotten the memo yet, life is hard. In the last six years, our family's experienced the loss of my father, the loss of my sister-in-law to cancer, the loss of two jobs, the loss of two church families, a cancer diagnosis, a major relocation, and a pandemic. And I don't need you to feel sorry for me because I know you've had your version of that story too. Am I right? Every single one of us brought hurts and heartaches and traumas into this room with us this morning. And there were days when we didn't know if we were going to make it. And for some of us, those days are right now. Every single one of you could share a similar story about a health issue, a financial issue, a relationship issue, a work issue, a family issue, because it's hard. And we need people who can hold us up when our knees buckle. We need people who can help us get our head above the water when it feels like we're drowning spiritually and emotionally. We need people who can help us hold on unswervingly to the hope we profess. I remember when I was taking driver's ed, one of my teachers very wisely told me, he's like, Always point your eyes where you want your car to go because if you're like looking over here, like the wheel will just drift wherever it is that your eyes are going. So he's like, it's really important that you keep your eyes fixed on where you go so that you're not swerving all over the place. You've been driving by a car that like looks like somebody is either sleepy or inebriated. And you're like, I'm going to back all the way off because I have no idea what this person is doing. God says, I want you to hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess because that hope will be a compass and an anchor that will hold you and direct you when you are overwhelmed by life's storms. There's a story that I love in the scriptures in John chapter 11 where Jesus is connecting with a woman who he knows well. Her name is Martha. Her sister is Mary. They got a brother by the name of Lazarus who's passed away. And she is angry at Jesus. Because when Lazarus first got sick, she sent for help, and he did not show up. And then he died. And Martha, this is what I love about Martha, she gets in Jesus' face. She's like, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's like, "You you heal strangers, and you wouldn't come through for us? What gives, Jesus? And then Jesus says this to her. 
He goes, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I think that when Jesus asked Martha a question, he expected an answer. I think he waited for her to either nod her head or shake her head because he's like, Martha, right now your back is up against the wall and you have a choice to make. Do, I am the resurrection and the life, yes or no? Because if the answer is yes, then even death cannot defeat your brother. But if Jesus is not the resurrection and life, guess, guess what? Y- y'all and I are wasting our time. There are better things that we should be doing with our Sundays than this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. And you know why we need community? We need community so that other people can say, hey, I know times are hard and I know that you're scared. Jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? And we can say, I don't believe it today. I need you to believe it for me. Grab my hand. Let's walk together. Or sometimes we say, you know what? I had forgotten that Jesus is both the resurrection and the life. Thanks for the reminder. I think I'm better now. But like either Jesus defeated sin and death and hell and everything that comes against your spiritual soul or he didn't. If he did, there's hope. If he didn't, we're all in a world of hurt. So almost exactly two years ago, my father was on his deathbed and we as our family, we're just praying that God would heal him. And then I remember this passage where God said, Steve, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you, do you believe in the resurrection, yes or no? Do you believe that your father will rise again on the other side of eternity to new life in Jesus? And for a moment I had to say, no, I didn't believe it. That's why I couldn't let go. Because I didn't believe that you're the resurrection and the life. But now that I know that, I can stop white-knuckling this loss and release it. Now, does it mean that losing our dad didn't hurt? Of course not. It still hurts. There's a hole in all of our hearts. But we could let him go with hope and peace. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And my dad died believing in him, which means he's going to live again even though he dies. Physical death is not the greatest enemy that we will face spiritual despair is the greatest enemy that we will face. And we need other people to remind us of what is real and true and right. You know why we need community? We need community so that people who love us can tell us the truth. We need community so that people who love us can hold us up when we're drowning. We sang that, we sang that amazing song. What a, what, a, what, a, what a gift this worship team is to us. But we sang the song, The Goodness of God. And at both of these services, I was able to look around and I heard some of you sing, all my life you have been faithful, tears streaming down your face. Why? Because there were some really hard seasons that you didn't understand and Jesus walked with you through that tunnel and brought you out on the other side. And I don't know if you know this, but sometimes when I'm going through the valley, I need somebody who's on the mountain to be able to say, it gets better, hang on. And sometimes when I'm on the mountain, I watch people in the valley to be able to say like, oh, I'm probably not going to live forever on the top of this mountain. My valley, I've been in a valley. Another valley will one day come and I'm watching their perseverance and their faithfulness to say like, when my time comes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to them and say, how did you hang on? Because I, I I've never been in this set of scenarios I need to do it. We come to church so that we can hear other people sing for us when we can't. And we come to church because some days we get to sing for somebody who is silent. Some of us say like, I don't need community. Well, guess what? The community needs you. Show up already. 
because you might be the answer to somebody else's prayers. So for half a second, remember that this is not about you. This is about what God wants to do through you because God has you, let me tell you this for a second. There's not a single heartache in your life that God does not want to use to encourage somebody else who has that heartache or will have that heartache. Rick Warren says God never wastes a hurt. So you might not want to be around people, but guess what? God has allowed you to walk the path that you have been on, warts and all, so that you can let somebody else know that there is hope for today and tomorrow. You might not think you need anybody, but somebody needs you. So let's be the kind of people who tell each other the truth. Let's be the kind of people who are lifelines when other people are struggling, and let's be the other people who are helping other people become the best versions of themselves. The last command here is like, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Somebody once said, a coach is a person who tells you what you don't want to do so you can be the person you never thought you could become. I don't know if any of you played sports, but how many of you, like, after, after a run of 100-yard sprints, you're like, I love my coach. He's my favorite person in the world. Like, I hate that guy. If he got hit by a bus tonight, I would not cry. That's a horrible thing to think, but some of you were thinking it, right? She's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to stretch. I don't want to get up early. I don't want to give up donuts. I don't want to do any of these things. And they're like, do you want to come home with the state ring or not? And you're like, yes. And you're like, okay, fine. Do the work. Stick with the plan. And good coaches will push not just individuals but groups of people into places that they did not know they were capable of. And you know why we need to be community for one another? So we can help other people become the people that they never dreamed they could become through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of Jesus Christ. I love what the verse says there. It goes, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. He doesn't say, like, warmly encourage one another on towards loving good deeds. He says, I want you to spur one another on towards loving good deeds. What's a spur? A spur is a sharp metal object that gets slammed into the side of a thousand-pound animal to make it go in a direction that it wouldn't choose to go on its own. How many of you have had people spur you in your life, and you're like, that hurt, and thank you? Because people who love you will spur you. They know you've got an extra gear. They're not going to let you settle for less than what Jesus has called you to and created you for. The Apostle Paul says in the book of the Ephesians, he goes, we are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do work, to do good deeds that God created in advance for us to do. Did you know that there is a divine to-do list with your name on it? That there are specific acts of love and mercy and justice and kindness that God has put you and only you on this earth to do. And we have the adventure of discovering what those deeds are and doing them with joy. Because here's the, here's the truth. God is going to get done in this universe what God wants done, whether you cooperate with him or not. But if I don't cooperate with God, who loses? God? No, me! God said, Steve, I gave you, I was inviting you into an adventure and you took a pass because it was hard or scary or you wanted to sleep in. That didn't affect God, but that diminished joy and impact and power and freedom in my life. So God, I, God said, I created good works for you to do. Not, not because I'm giving you chores, but because I'm inviting you to the adventure of my mission in your context in this lifetime. 
Would you like to join me as I be the resurrection and the life in your town and school and home and place of work? We need other people to help us discern what God has created us to do and then give us the courage and the motivation to do it. We do not stumble into a life of love and good deeds. We have to cultivate the kind of hearts that push us into love and good deeds. We need other people who will help us listen to God's will so that we know what it is and then have the courage to execute it. Because I'll, I'll, like, I'll go first. My default mode is to do whatever is safe and convenient and comfortable for me. I need other people to be able to say, like, Steve, the work that Jesus is doing is bigger than you and your opinions and your agendas and your preferences. If you can submit yourself to what God is doing, a door will open to a life that you never could have imagined. Are you ready to move forward with Jesus? Or are you just gonna kind of hunker down and do your own thing? Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews says, this life is short and you are guaranteed no more days than the day that you are in. If there was one thing that the pandemic reminded me of is that I am not God and I am not in control. None of us had ever lived through a global pandemic before. Like, the one unifying thing that we can all share is, like, I can't control it, and I don't get to choose when it's over. All I can choose is how I'm going to respond while I'm in it. So God says, a day when your life ends or when Jesus returns, whatever comes first, that day is coming. It is an actual day. The day of my passing or the day of Christ's return is a fixed point in, human, in the future of human history. How will I live my one and only life between this day and that day? because one person gets to choose that life. That's you. But the people who can help you make the best choice with that life is all of us. And we need each other. And my hope for you is that at the end of what you hear today, you would either be reminded that you need a group of people in the middle of your heartache, in the middle of your loneliness, in the middle of your despair, you need a group of people to come to the end of your driveway and sing your song. Or maybe you're in a really good spot and you need to be reminded that there's somebody who's alone and suffering and hurting and isolated and they need you to round up about 18 friends and go to the end of their driveway and sing their song. Because just because you can go through life alone doesn't mean you should. Because we were created to be gifts to one another. Let's not withhold that gift. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your great love for us. And I thank you that you are inviting us to the kind of soul-bearing, truth-telling, good-deed-invoking kind of community that you live in. And Lord, to those of us who have settled for isolation out of fear, I pray that you would forgive us. Lord, those who have settled for isolation out of past hurt, I pray that you would heal us. Those who have settled for isolation out of shame, I pray that you would allow us to utter those three difficult words, I need help, and allow other people to break through the spiritual prisons that we have found ourselves in so that we might be healed. God, I pray that you would use us, the people of LifeBridge in South Haven, 
to love each other so well that our friends and neighbors and tourists and strangers couldn't help but want the life that we have. Lead us into your truth for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So again, I leave you with the same question Steve did. Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection, the way, the truth, the life? Are you finding yourself drawn more to him each day? It's a process, ladies and gentlemen. It is not an instantaneous thing for most of us. It is a lifelong journey. I've been studying and seeing a lot about how the disciples, they looked a lot like us a lot of the time, and they were with Jesus every day. So don't give up hope. If you're continuing to grow and seek the Lord, that's where we all are. And I pray this time together has strengthened you, has encouraged you to walk closer to him. Thank you again for being our partner. Let me remind you, we have our Winning at Home banquet coming up on October the 21st. We only do it every other year. Uh, We are asking you to come to be a part of it. Many of you are sponsoring tables. If you haven't yet, please give us a call, 772-1733. Ask for Julie. Get signed up to be a part of this event. Thank you so much again. And at this event, I'm going to talk about Winning at Home on Purpose, why we're doing what we're doing. And I know it will be a time of encouragement for you as you see what God is using your support to do here, not only in the Highland Zealand community, but around the world. So thanks for your partnership. We look forward to seeing you on October the 21st. And again, enjoy this month of September.